Hello and welcome back to another episode of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia-China Business Council. I'm once again joined by China product expert Matthew McKenzie as we discuss the prominent trade shows that occur across China and how a company can best prepare themselves prior to exhibiting. We also look at the opportunities of lower tier cities across China, taking the initial steps via e-commerce channels and leveraging Daigo's to sell your product on their behalf. Matthew has over 20 years experience working in China with iconic Australian brands such as Tim Tam, Wheat Bix and Morning Fresh. In 2014, he co-founded the Export Group, which he led in China until earlier this year before relocating to Hong Kong. He's now the general manager, Marketing Asia for Bright Food Asia, that have offices across China, Hong Kong and Macau, and represent some of the largest FMCG brands in the market, including Wrigley Mars, Ferrero Rocher and Kettle Chips. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome back to episode two on our mini series of market entry strategies with Matthew McKenzie from Bright Foods Asia. Um, On this episode, we're going to talk about where and how to launch your product in China when you're taking that first step of entering the market. Um, So Matt, can I ask, would you say a trade show is the best way to initially gauge the interest for your product in China as a first step? Yeah, look, as a first step, um, it's definitely a good way. Whether it's the best way or not, I'm not, I'm not sure. And again, it's probably dependent on the type of product. Mm. But I think it's a really good way to um, not just only test the product, but test the market. Um, and by that, I mean all of those, uh, all of that infrastructure that we've spoken about in the previous episode in terms of you know, local industry associations, government associations, people that are on the ground, etc. They all congregate at these trade shows, mm. as well as importers, distributors, retailers. So it really gives you that opportunity to put your product up in lights mm. um, and get some feedback uh, from various angles within the market. Mm. Plus, it gives you then the opportunity to, to go out and take a look at, at what's happening with your competition, both at the trade show and, and in trade. The only sort of downside to trade shows that I would say is that People at trade shows in China, from my experience, have been um, extremely polite okay. in terms of not saying, oh, look, this product's never going to work. They'll say, oh, yes, I'm interested, but then you never hear back from you, them. And these are the buyers that you the, meet and talk to at a trade show? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's the, only, that's the sort of the only thing to be wary of. Right. But as far as finding where you, you, know, where you sit within the market, I think it's a really good and, and cost-effective way of, of achieving oh. achieving that goal. Okay, so th- thinking of food and beverage products, what, yeah. what are some of the main prominent trade shows that an exporter should consider in China? Okay, so we just we just had um, last week the Sial Show, yep. S-I-A-L, uh, in, in Shanghai, um, and that's that's an annual an annual show. Um, around November, uh, we have. Uh, FHC, so Food and Hotel China. That's also a very a very good show. Having said that, it's been a little bit. Now last year, the FHC show was a little bit less um, less robust than previous years because we had the China International Import Expo, uh, yeah. which was the week before, and that was the one that um, Xi Jinping came down for. Uh, so a lot of effort and energy been put in by a lot of companies to that show. So that was slightly diminished. The other show, which over the years it happens every second year. Um, is Hofex, which is actually in Hong Kong. Okay. Um, and a lot of there's a lot of interest and a lot of buyers come down from China for that. Obviously, I mean Hong Kong is right on the doorstep of, of the mainland. It's now I think it's eight minutes on the fast train to Shenzhen. Okay. Um, 
and you know it, it's it's quite an it's quite a regional show. So Hofex can be quite interesting. It, it, that that show was about three weeks ago, so it's you know it's almost two years until the next one. Um, but for food and beverage, those would be the kind of shows. Uh, wine, there are a couple of wine expos uh, that I'll be looking at as well. Yeah, um, but they're they're really the big they're really the big shows to take a look at. Um, so certainly the the Chinese Communist Party is putting a, a, a lot of investment into the CIIE trade show that had its first um, incarnation last November. Yep. Um, is that too big for an SME? So for a company that doesn't really have a, a large footprint in China, is it better to focus on something more specific to your industry like CR or FHC? Or do you think that CIIE is so prominent that there's going to be buyers from all over China and it's, and it's worth having a crack at, at that trade show too? Well, I, I, think, I think there's probably a stronger argument for looking at the, at the specific shows mm. um, that are focused on the industry sectors. Um, the, other one, the other one actually I forgot to mention is the Child Baby Mother Expo CBME, okay. uh, which I think is around October, mm. uh, September, October. But that, that's def- if you're in the mother and baby space, that's definitely worth taking a look at. The CIIE show last year was the first, uh, the first time that it, was, that it was held and security was extremely tight. People that hadn't pre-registered six weeks prior to the show couldn't actually get into the show. Mm. Uh, so I think there was a lot of um, teething issues with yeah. the show. Um, it's probably better to ask me after the next one okay. um, just to see whether it loosens up a bit. But to be brutally honest, I think it was probably too big. It was very easy to get lost. Mm. Um, there's multiple halls, double story. Yeah, um, It's really a big... You know, in China, there's, there's many ways that the um, Chinese government really likes to show... Scale, right? Uh, so I, I got a feeling, that in a sense, that it was really about scale. Okay. In some instances, over substance, and and when you talk about Seoul, Seoul is a big show. Yeah. Um, from memory, there was eight halls, so it's it's a it's a very big show. Yeah. Um, and but it was probably half the size of CWA. Mm, yeah. Okay. So so for businesses that you've worked with mm. in China, um, and for businesses that have exhibited at a trade show, I'm I'm sure you've had cases where businesses thought, oh, you know, God, I wish I thought of that, or you know, I wish I did that differently. What what advice do you give to a business before they exhibit? What should they prepare so they have ready so that they're ready to go and make the most of a trade show when they're there? There's a number. There's a number of things that I I would recommend on that list. And firstly, is having information. You know some basic information sheets on on, on your product and on, on, on your business, okay. um, both in English and in Chinese. Yep. The second thing is getting samples up there well and truly before the trade show. Um, getting getting particularly food and beverage samples into China can can be somewhat of a nightmare sometimes. And you know if people leave that to the last minute, um, it's not uncommon for them to show up to the to the trade show and the samples arrive two weeks after you know actually clear customs two weeks after the trade oh, show is yeah, actually okay. finished so <laughs> there's nothing worse and more frustrating for for a poor brand owner that's put so much effort and energy into into coming up and a lot of expense yeah. uh, to not actually have any physical samples there and if there's no samples then it really becomes um, you know a bit of a wasted experience in, in many cases yeah I think that um, also, if you don't have a local partner on the ground, um, you know, tap into some of the resources on the ground and, and get yourself someone um, that can work on your stand together with you um, that, that can speak the local language. Yeah. Uh, I think that can be very helpful. And the one thing I would say with that is you don't want someone that's just a translator. You, you really want to spend a day with them before the show and pay them for that day. 
and, and teach them about the product, teach them about the business so they actually really understand. Oh, so they're not just an interpreter. They really have, yeah, yeah okay. They're not, yeah, exactly. They're not just interpreting um, because then, you know, they won't be able to answer the questions properly. Um, you may not get full understanding of what the actual questions are, etc. So you really want to invest a little bit of time in, in those people that are representing your company. Yeah. Um, I find that I find that having um, not necessarily uniforms, but even even polo shirts with the brand name that, that you wear and any of any staff that you've got on the stand, okay, where just looks very professional. Yeah. Um, and the more professional of an appearance that you have, um, the stronger of a response you're going to get from from partners, okay. uh, potential partners on the ground. And then obviously, um, as we discussed in an earlier episode, you, you want to have your IP. Um, register you want that you want that ball to be in play before before you actually exhibit product uh, in China so I'd definitely be doing that as well and is there any way that you can show that you have your IP registered is that is that something to to do at a trade show to deter anyone that may be looking to steal your IP at a trade show is it worth kind of saying in some form that you know your IP has been registered look look not not necessarily to protect you from from other people because if it's registered then someone goes and tries to register it you know, and you can easily check online whether the trademark is being registered or okay not. yeah uh, the same as you can do in Australia um, but more so I think for potential partners to, to grow help you to grow your business um, I know that I know that in my business um, you know we we don't work with companies that haven't got their trademarks actually protected okay. because the last thing we want to do is put effort, energy, expense into building a business uh, to then find out in six months' time, six years' time, that all of that energy has gone to waste because someone else owns the trademark and they can take it off. They can they can take the business office at any point in time, yeah. stop the business at any okay. point in time. So I think to sh- and there are trademark certificates that the um, that okay. the um, trademark office issue. Uh, so it's good to have that there. Okay. Um, not necessarily to display, but to show potential partners to say, look, yes, we are we are protected, which actually shows how serious you are about the market as well. Okay. Um, so for that for that purpose, I would I would have it there if you've got it. So when you're having a conversation with a potential buyer who you know is having a pretty busy day going around from store to store, you know you don't really have a lot of face to face time generally with that potential buyer what are the essential things you really want to get from that buyer do you want to know about supply do you want to know about quantity or how far should you take that first conversation with that potential buyer look i think um what what you really want to be getting a knowledge of is is what is their business all about um so are they a retailer are they a wholesaler are they a distributor Mm. um so let's say in the case of a let's, let's assume that they're a distributor Okay, so I really want to understand what other products are you, are you currently distributing? Uh, and I want to understand that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, are there any conflicts of interest? So if I'm, a, if I'm a small wine producer from Australia and you're already working with a couple of really big wineries from, from Europe, I'm probably not going to get that much attention. Mm. Conversely, if my wine is unique compared to those wines, I may not get a huge amount of attention, but actually I might get more attention than what I deserve because it's a unique it's a unique wine within that portfolio and they've already got great reach and distribution. Right. So I really want to be understanding who else who else is represented within that. Okay. Secondly, I want to be understanding where are they selling to. So if anyone says to you that they supply all channels in China, across all of China, then right. that's... Yeah. B, that's BS. That does not that. That doesn't happen. And is that something you kind of hear a lot about? You Like you hear that boasting and... Sometimes you do hear it and... and 
you know, sometimes people have got sub-distributed networks or sub-sub-distributed networks, but there's no way that any single company can supply all channels across all of China. It's just, it's just too big, it's too diverse. Mm. Um, so what, what I look for and, and what I like to see are companies that are strong in a specific category, channel or region. Okay. Um, and each of, you know, each of those subsets can be significant businesses in sure. their own right. Yeah. Um, so that, I really want to get an understanding around that. Thirdly, I'd like to understand how old is this company? So, okay, is it a company that's 12 months old, three months old? Is it 15 years old? Mm. Okay, well, I, I, I tend to be more interested in companies that have been around for a long time because they've proven themselves. And as as the market in China has evolved and, and, and changed so much over the last couple of decades, mm. if they've been able to survive that, then they're a robust business that, that clearly do things, do mm. things well. Um, and then... The last thing, if I can get out of a distributor, is, okay, so you represent ABC brand from, from Europe and you tell me you've got a great relationship with them. Um, I think there's an interesting, really interesting opportunity for us to work here together. I'd love if you could please give me a reference. I'd, I'd like to do a reference check. So if you could let me know if I, someone that I can contact an oh. ABC company in France, right. I'd love to give them a call. Okay. And if they... if, if all of a sudden, oh no no no, I can't do that. Well, then yeah. that that's a that's a red flag. Okay. Conversely, if they say yeah, absolutely, um, you can speak to Mr. You know Jacques in in France, and this is his name and number, and I'll let him know that you're going to give him a call. Yeah. Well, that to me is a fantastic sign. Mm. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask those kind of questions as well. But really, what you want to be getting in the you know, and this conversation can take place over a space of a couple of minutes and can be quite quick. Yeah. You want to get as much information out of them as you can. Um, and then if, if, if all that information kind of marries up with, in your mind, a company that you want to work with, well, then you, you want to be really delving in. Mm. Um, then what I would say is, is if, if time allows and geography allows, because obviously China is such a large country, you may want to visit their premises um, if, if, if you can whilst you're on the ground in China or have a third party go and visit their premises, mm. etc. Okay. just to make sure that everything that they say does stack up because... Uh, some companies say that they they do certain things which which they may not. Um, so it's really about doing your due diligence. Mm. Mm. So a lot of those trade shows do seem to take place on the on the, on the east coast of China. Yes. So if your strategy is to target a lower tier city, so mm. a third or fourth tier city in central or western China, how can a company gauge whether those lower tier cities have an appetite for your product? How can you go to those cities mm. and, and and get some understanding for whether your product might be feasible there? Well, I think. Look, again, tapping into those organisations that we spoke of earlier, and, some, and if you look at uh, the Victorian government, for example, I mean, they have an office in, in Western China now. Okay. Um, so I'd definitely be, you know, if, I'm, if, if you're from Victoria, um, be looking at, at, at those kind of resources, Austrade, et cetera. Um, secondly, when you're on the ground in China, the, the, the infrastructure now is so fantastic in terms of the rail system, the, um, the airport uh, system... When, when you're in China for one of these trade shows, it's it's nothing to jump on a train for two or three hours and you can easily be in a myriad of second, third or fourth tier cities mm. uh, very, very easily and, and go and take a look. Um, I, I, I would I would strongly encourage and strongly encourage that. So let's say if you're if, if you wanted to go to one of those third or fourth tier cities and you wanted to maybe go to a supermarket and, mm. and, and give some sampling to, to local people who visit that supermarket, how would you go about coordinating or setting something like that up? Yeah, look, you'd probably want to work with a local distributor, mm. a local partner, uh, one of those trade associations that are on the ground, um, and and 
you know, again, having having trained staff on the ground that can actually then not just do the sampling but also gather data and information for you, mm. uh, I think that, that that could be quite an interesting way of, of getting that data for your business. Mm. Okay. And so is there anything, are there any stark differences between um, first tier cities and lower tier cities regarding retail behaviour? Do, do lower tier city consumers, for example, spend more time in the supermarket or is there anything that distinguishes them? Some of the things that I've observed in my time out in the second, third, fourth tier cities um, running trade programs is that in a lot of the lower tier cities, um, there's not very much to do. Mm. There's not much entertainment. So if you're living in Shanghai, there's something... 24-7 to keep you entertained. If you're out in one of these smaller cities um, that might only have one, two million people, there's not that much to do. Mm. So people actually come into supermarkets for a bit of theatre on the weekend. So right. there's nothing for them to be sampling different products, trialling different things, coming in to, to spend some time almost as a form of entertainment. Uh, and so what we find is that that there's a very open openness to foreign brands, trialling foreign brands, trialling foreign products. Mm. And it, it, I think it's a very good way to get, you know, have a look at how your product uh, is received by the market. Mm. Um, and, and, and what about the, the, the breakdown of those those retail stores and supermarkets all across China? Mm. Is it Does it tend to be monopolised or does it tend to be each province or each city within that province maybe has their own supermarket chain that you won't see anywhere else? Yeah, they tend to have regional dominators. Okay. It's very similar to the United States in that sense. Okay. So if you look at, at regional players in the United States, they can be some of the largest retailers almost in the world now, and you won't see them on the other side, the other side of the country. And it's very similar in China where you've got strong, you know, strong regional players mm. that, that dominate a province uh, or a couple of provinces. And, and you know, you've got to remember... If you look at, say, a place like um, Hunan province, um, you know, if that was a country unto its own right, it's got an economy the size of Vietnam. Yeah. Now, everyone knows of Vietnam because it's a, it's a country unto itself, but most people, a lot of people may not have heard of Hunan. Mm. Um, yet, economically, just that province alone is, yeah. is quite significant. Right. Um, and so I guess that, you know, getting out there and embracing some of these regional dominators can be quite an interesting way to grow a business as well. Okay. Um, so let's say a business has gone to a trade show and, you know, had a, had a few really promising conversations with potential buyers and, and they get back to Australia and they think, well, you know, before I strike up a partnership, I, I, I want to test my product on an e-commerce platform. Yeah. At, at what stage of the export experience do you think a business should consider um, having their product on an e-commerce platform? Well, I think it's getting earlier and earlier into the process, really, isn't it? Over the years, it's kind of evolved, mm. um, where e-commerce was sort of a, a quasi-channel, and then then it's become almost the main channel for some for some categories. So I, I would suggest that probably earlier in the um, brand development evolution, um, and the reason I would say that is that if if there is an opportunity in China for for your brand and product. Um, whether you like it or not, it's probably it probably will hit the e-commerce channels with or without you right, okay. via the informal Digo channel. Yeah. So it's better that you take take the control of that up front um, and communicate your brand and proposition properly. One of the challenges though with e-commerce is is that it is such a busy channel now, um, and it, it can be very expensive to get noticed. So it's a it's it's a real struggle, and this is where possibly working with aggregators um, such as Tmall, you know, the Australia Post store, for example, where, yeah. you know, there are, there are various Australian brands uh, on that platform. People can go and explore 
so that that may be one way to try to beat that. But right. Um, but yeah, just you got to remember it is a very very busy very busy space because i think a lot of people may be intimidated to 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 go it alone on these platforms that Mm. you know don't really kind of make a lot of sense and obviously they're in a different language and we really don't have a a, a comparison to them in australia in terms of how 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 often they're used in china um so would you recommend something like tmall in terms of it, it does give businesses that support um, where they can kind of work with an organisation like Australia Post to help taking its initial footsteps digitally in China? Yeah, look, I think I think as a first step, that's probably a wise move for mm. those companies that haven't had much experience on the ground. And, you know, you may not set the world on fire in terms of the sales that you achieve. However, what it will do is give you exposure to the system and how it works, um, right. you know, give you exposure to things such as, you know, looking at, at how you can attract traffic, your conversion rates, you know, all, all these kind of things which are which are very important in e-commerce. I think as as your brand evolves, you may wish to look at more... And, and, you, and you've got a, a product which you want consumers to experience. You might start looking at, um, you know, some of these platforms, you know, such as Little Red Book. So, Xiao uh, Hongshu. So, you know, where you, you create content with KOLs mm. that, are, that are relevant to the audience that you're looking to attract. Oh, OK. Um, and, you know, they, they then put that out on short videos... Um, right. out to their followers and then you can quite cleverly link to, to sort of e-commerce um, you know, transaction sites. So, mm. and, and so a KOL is like an influencer? Yeah, key opinion, well, yeah, KOL, key, key opinion leader, influencer as we know them here in Australia. Mm. Um, one, one note of caution is, you know, big is not necessarily best in terms of KOLs. Um, I've seen a lot of companies make mistakes in terms of spending a lot of money on a single KOL rather than uh, working with what they call grassroots KOLs, okay. uh, who are more, you know, more attainable to, to typical consumers um, and, and seems to be more relevant to their lifestyle. So what, what's really important there is, is looking at partnering with people that uh, are relevant to your brand and relevant to the target audience that you're trying to trying to hit. Okay. Um, now, you also mentioned Daigo before. Well, well, how would you translate Daigo into, into English? Daigo in, like, personal shoppers. Right. Um, so I guess this, really, this industry really spawned out of um, a lot of the trade barriers of getting product into China. Mm. Um, nothing to do with the, the trade war, but more in terms of regulatory uh, challenges. Uh, so people were essentially like the suitcase buyers. That's really how this how this all started and uh, people carting product up to China and, and then selling it. And that's really now spawned into uh, selling via some of these big e-commerce platforms mm. uh, where product can be picked and packed here in Australia and, and shipped up quite efficiently to, to China now. Um, yes, that's that's really what Daigo is. And so does, does a company have... Uh, relationship with those Daigos or is the, or are the Daigos just kind of more their, their their own organism and they just you know do their own thing with your product and, and you essentially are left to sit back and and relinquish control of your product it's a bit of both really okay um, so some of the companies that have been very successful in China have really uh, been able to drive the Daigo and provide them with content information do information sessions mm. etc um, to support to support growth of that channel Whereas in some instances, um, brands almost unbeknownst to them have been beneficiaries of, of Daigo selling, like buying product from whether it be Chemist Warehouse or Coles mm. or Woolworths or okay. from, from wherever, yeah. um, and, then, and then selling, selling a product via their, via their own 
whether it be WeChat stores or, or platform stores. Mm, excellent. Okay, well, Matt, that brings us to the end of our second episode where we've discussed trade shows, uh, lower tier cities and possible e-commerce channels. I'm looking forward to having a chat on the third episode of our mini series where we talk about tracking your progress once your product is open in the China market. Great. Thanks, James. My thanks to Matthew for sharing his experience once again. And for more from our podcast, please drop by to the podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can find show notes from all our previous episodes. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help us to continue to grow our listenership. Thanks also to Austrade for their support of this exciting new series of the podcast. This activity received funding from Austrade as part of the Free Trade Agreement Market Entry Grant Program. The views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of the Commonwealth of Australia and the Commonwealth does not accept responsibility for any information or advice contained herein. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening and until next time, zai jian. <laughs>